Hello. Um, the reading today is from John 20. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I don't think we have it on the screen this week. So if you have your Bibles or your phones with you, uh, we're doing the whole of John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thanks, friends. Good to be with you again. 1969, very important year in the history of um, the last 100 years. A number of important things happened in 1969. First of all, we have a... Whoop, I want to... That was a double click. This is very sensitive. We'll talk about both those things at once. Well, actually, the first one on the left-hand side, the Woodstock Festival. Three days of a, a whole bunch of hippies gathering together in a field on the outskirts of New York where they spent those days listening to people like Jimi Hendrix and taking drugs and engaging in other recreational activities. Um, but it was a, a very important moment which kind of epitomised a cultural trend from that part of the last century, the hippie movement from the 1960s through to the 1970s. Also in 1969, on the other side, Rod Laver, the, the last male to win the tennis Grand Slam, the Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon and the US Open. No man has done that since. Roger Federer came, came close in 2004, but... Um, the French Open has always been a little bit problematic for him. He's only won it once, only once, not compared to the other Grand Slams that he's won numerous times. Uh, Steffi Graf, of course, has won the Grand Slam um, from a, in the women's tour. 1988 is when she won the Grand Slam, but Roger Feder uh, Rod Laver was the last person to win from a, the men's competition in 1969. Also, perhaps the biggest thing that happened in 1969 is that two American astronauts, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, landed on the moon for the first time. Humans went to that celestial body and um, traversed the moon dust up there on the lunar surface. And this event, of course, showcased just how far we've come as a human race. Our ingenuity and our inventiveness, mastering space travel, putting two men on the moon. And that happened, of course, on the 20th of July, 1969, or did it? <laughs> because, don't you know, the original footage has been lost. Pictures like that one published by NASA, of course, were taken on a huge Hollywood set and the US government paid off thousands of people to keep quiet about this. The US government actually had a very good reason to fabricate this lie. Why? It's the height of the Cold War. The Russians have put someone up there into space first, and so the Americans had to top that somehow. What better way than to fabricate a moon landing? And don't you think it's just a little too convenient that all these supposed moon landings happened way back before our living memory, back in the 60s, back in the 70s. If we can put people on the moon, how come it's not happening now? You haven't thought about that, have you? <laughs> you might think, well, they can't afford it. The cost is too prohibitive. That is absolute rubbish. Because if they could afford it in the 1960s, of course they can afford it now. How much cheaper is stuff these days? <laughs> than compared back to the 1960s. And there is more computing power, they tell us, in an iPhone, more computing power in an iPhone than in the whole supposed Eagle lunar landing module. If people can land on the moon, surely they'd be doing it now, but the Russians aren't doing it, the Chinese aren't doing it, 
and the Americans never have. <laughs> Who's with me? It's all there on the internet. You can look it up. Fact, not fiction. Of course, uh, you shouldn't read or you shouldn't believe everything you read on the internet. Uh, you'd be happy to know that I'm actually not a moon landing denier, but I'm happy to believe that human beings have walked on the moon um, from 1969 through to 1972, which was the last time that um, the Americans sent an Apollo mission to the moon's surface. But uh, what these conspiracy theories do, not only do they offer us a little bit of light relief, but they also remind us that whenever you make a serious claim, there's always going to be someone who's going to be sceptical. Make a serious claim and you need to be prepared for people to turn around and go, really? Did that really happen? I'm not going to believe it unless you can prove it. And so such is the nature of the sceptical world in which we live. Now, for just under 2,000 years, the Christian church has been making a pretty big claim. And the claim is this, that Jesus of Nazareth was killed and buried in a tomb on a Friday and then on the third day after that, on the Sunday morning, he was raised back to life. That's a big claim. And it's a claim which has attracted its fair share of sceptics over the years. But uh, this afternoon, I want to suggest that this is a claim worth considering because if Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, that raises a pretty important question. Could there actually be something beyond the grave? Could there be life after death? Because if Jesus was able to somehow attain that, then maybe he holds the key as to how we might grasp hold of it. And it's something, I think deep down, I mean, we don't, sometimes we train ourselves not to think about it, but if we do go there and we do think about it, I think it's something we deeply want. I mean, I think it was Woody Allen, the American filmmaker, who said, it's not that I'm afraid of death, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. You see, that's true, isn't it? But the promise of the resurrection is that maybe there's an answer. That's the promise of the resurrection. But before we grab hold of that promise, there is another question which raises itself, and that's the question of the fact of the resurrection. Did it really happen, or is the Christian church just holding out false promises? That's the question I'd like us to um, discover this afternoon, or explore this afternoon. Now, in response to modern scepticism, uh, the Christian church has offered three main arguments in support of this belief. First argument is the existence of the empty tomb. That needs to find an explanation if we're to um, deny the resurrection. Second argument, the appearance of Jesus to witnesses. And the third argument is the observable change in the disciples, a change which we can ascribe to their encounter with the resurrected Lord. And we see all these arguments represented in John chapter 20, beginning with the fact of the empty tomb. How are we going for sound now? I feel like there's a bit of echo. Is that irritating for people? Yep. yep. <laughs> all right. Ex-president is indicating something to me. 
Turn the volume down a bit. We'll see how that goes. Still getting it? Yep. Have I got a gain on it? I've got no idea what that is. How about we turn this off? We turn this up. How does that... Hello? 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 Can you hear me now? That's good. How about we just go with the lectern? All right. We're in business. Good. All right. So John chapter 20, and we begin with the fact of the empty tomb. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, one of the female disciples, who first saw evidence that something had happened. Chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we, interesting she uses the uh, plural pronoun there, and we don't know where they have put him. Read the rest of the Gospel accounts and it appears that Mary wasn't the only person at this point, but there were at least two other women with her, Mary the mother of Jesus and another woman called Salome. And in the verses that follow in John's account, Peter and John also run to the tomb. They both go inside, only to find the burial cloths, the, 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 the linens that, that dead people were, were wrapped in, only to find these burial linens with no body to be seen. So here is the question. What happened to the body? Easy, says the Christian. Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, just hold, let's hold on just for a moment right there because if we're going to be mature thinkers about this, then we at least need to explore some of the other explanations as to why the tomb might be empty. Maybe the Roman or Jewish leaders decided to move it. Maybe somebody moved the body. It's as simple as that, perhaps. Well, in the biblical account, uh, the Romans seem pretty disinterested in the whole affair, actually. Uh, Pilate, the, the trial of Jesus seems to be something that he doesn't want much to do with, so it's a little hard to find a motivation as to why the Romans would decide to move the body. The Romans were interested in maintaining what's known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and so they may have been motivated to action if they felt the growing Christian movement was becoming too much of a threat, too much of a disruption, disruption sorry, and uh, they could have disarmed that growing movement by producing Christ's body if they had it, you see. But no such body is ever produced, which indicates that the Romans didn't know where it was. They didn't grab it, they didn't move it, they had nothing to do with it. Likewise, we run into a similar problem if we consider the hypothesis that the Jewish leaders decided to, to take the body. Because when the Christian movement did grow and it started to have influence, the Jewish leaders were very uncomfortable with that and they wanted to stop the Christian movement from growing and so they decided to try a few different things. Mainly they resorted to violence. But they could have stopped it by just producing this body. If they moved it, if they knew where, where it was kept, they could have said, well, you Christians, you're preaching that Christ has been raised from the dead. Here he is. We've got him. And then because the Christian movement was based heavily on this claim that Christ had been raised from the dead, the Christian movement would have stopped. But no such body is ever produced. 
In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us that the Jewish leaders thought that the empty tomb was a problem. They had to find an excuse, so they blamed the disciples. Well, the disciples must have taken him. And uh, we might hear that accusation and think, well, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Maybe the disciples had reason to move Jesus' body because in moving Jesus' body, that would have been the first step in fabricating this lie that had been raised from the dead. But I'm not quite sure the disciples would have had as clear a motivation to move the body as, as we might think. It's interesting to note in this account of, uh, of John's that as Mary assessed the situation, she didn't go straight for the resurrection as an explanation. Did you pick that up? She's not thinking resurrection. She thinks, oh, someone must have moved him. And John admits in verses 8 and 9 that he only believed the resurrection after he saw the empty tomb. It wasn't something that he was expecting. You see, uh, both John and Mary, like many Jews of this time, they believed that God would raise everyone at the end of time, but they were not expecting the resurrection of the Messiah immediately. That's not how they read the Old Testament. And so it's hard to see why they would fabricate such a thing. It's just not something that was on their radar. And even if the disciples did want to move the body, Matthew tells us that a guard was placed on the tomb by the Jewish leaders, therefore making it very difficult for anyone to get close to do something with the deceased Jesus. And uh, by the way, the placing of this guard by the Jewish leadership indicated that they wanted that body to stay exactly where it was. They weren't interested in moving it at all. So did someone move the body? Is that, how, is that how we explain the empty tomb? Well, it's hard to see a motivation for this action from, from, either of the, from any of the main parties who were involved. It's hard to see why they would actually want to be involved in moving this body. Maybe the tomb was empty because Jesus wasn't actually dead. Maybe he never died. Maybe he just fainted on the cross and then recovered in the tomb where he managed to rip off all those bandages and, and linen that he was, he was wrapped up in and then he was able to move the heavy stone that was rolled in front of the tomb and then he managed to overpower the guards who were placed in front of the tomb and then he hooked up with his friends in Jerusalem. Maybe that's what's actually happened, kind of like an Aramaic-speaking version of Jackie Chan, right? Busting out of, that, out of that tomb and fighting off five guys at once and then hooking up with his friends. It's actually a serious theory called the swoon theory, that Jesus just kind of swooned on the cross and then he revived in the tomb. It's a theory put forward um, by an ex-vice ex president of the EU, actually. Barbara Thiering uh, was involved in the EU, in the, I think in the 40s or 50s or somewhere um, in that era, and then she went on to become quite a radical New Testament scholar here at the University of Sydney, and she put forward this theory that Jesus never actually died, that he somehow revived and made his way out of the tomb. It's problematic on a number of fronts. How likely is it that someone who's been brought so close to the edge of death, who'd been flogged and crucified, who'd had iron nails driven through their wrists and feet, how likely is it that they would have had the strength to do this? And to not only make it out of the tomb, but in Luke's account, to be found walking the 11-kilometre journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, walking 11 k's with those injuries in your feet, it's unlikely. And not only is it hard to imagine Christ being so vibrant 
after his ordeal. But when you read through the Gospel accounts, the Gospels seem to indicate in a number of ways that Jesus was in fact dead. Um, one of the things I've done in the last week is I've, I've tried to do some research and maybe some of the medically trained people here in, our, in, this, in this room this afternoon might be able to fill me in afterwards if I'm getting this a little wrong. But from what I understand, I, I tried to do the research as to how it is that a medical officer makes the determination that someone has in fact died. What, what, are, the signs or the, or the, what, what are the signs of the lack of life that people are looking for? Now, apparently, you know, it's not rocket science, but it is neuroscience in a way. Apparently, one of the signs is the corpse has stopped breathing. And actually, that's a much more reliable indicator than the absence of a pulse. So I've learnt during the, the last week. Now, when you look at the, um, the Gospel accounts, both Mark and Luke indicate that Jesus stopped breathing while on the cross. And in modern medicine, this is the sign that medical officers are looking for. If you've ever been in the very sad situation of attending to someone on their deathbed, as I have in my profession, it's something that you're called to do from time to time. If you've ever been in that situation, then you'll know that one of the things that marks someone's final hours is the very pronounced and um, obvious signs of, of breathing as, as the body is sucking that oxygen into its dying body. It's very pronounced and you notice it when it stops. And if you are observing a crucifixion with a body hanging on the cross, sagging down as the muscles get weaker and weaker and then heaving up to get that breath in and sagging down and then heaving up to get that breath in, you notice it when it stops. This is what both Mark and Luke testify about, that Jesus breathes his last. And so this is what these witnesses saw. They saw a man suffering extreme torture, extreme torture to the point when unsurprisingly he stopped breathing. Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb because he was able to have a rest, <laughs> then find the energy to walk out of there. That's a little far-fetched. According to our own modern reading of these texts, it seems as if Jesus was in fact dead on that cross. So we need to find another explanation as to why this tomb was empty. We find the explanation as we, as we read the rest of the chapter where the resurrected Jesus, that's what happened, he was raised from the dead, when the resurrected Jesus appears before a range of different witnesses. The first person to see Jesus is Mary Magdalene. You notice she was the first person to notice that the tomb was empty. She's also the first person to see the raised Jesus and their encounter is described in verses 14 to 17. And then in verse 18, we read that Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she said. And then she told them about the conversation she'd had with him. John continues in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side the disciples were overjoyed, like a room without a roof, as someone has said recently. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
And the appearances don't stop there. We read about Christ's appearance to Thomas. We'll, we'll get to that in just, in just a moment. And then in chapter 21, John tells us that Christ appeared to seven of the disciples on the shores of Lake Galilee. And then the Apostle Paul reports in 1 Corinthians that 500 people saw Jesus at once. And so we have multiple reports of numerous witnesses. That's what we see when we read the, the Gospels. Now, um, if you weren't here last week, as you're hearing me talk about this, you might be feeling frustrated. You might be feeling, well, how can you talk about the resurrection using the Bible? Because the Bible is biased. It's absolutely biased. How can you use the Bible to defend the resurrection? Well, last week we spoke about how a text like John can be both religious in intent and also reliable as history. In fact, historians deal with documents like this all the time. They deal with documents which have a deliberate intent, but also, despite that intent, they contain valuable historical information. And one of the things that makes John a valuable historical resource is his transparency. He names a lot of different people in his account. And what he's doing is inviting the readers the contemporaneous readers who were, who were alive when he was alive, he's inviting his readers to go and speak with his people and verify what it is that he's saying. It's as if he's saying, no, I've seen Jesus alive and so has Peter and so has Mary and so has Thomas and so have all these other guys. Why don't you go and speak with them? It's a very brave writer who decides to fabricate a lie and then implicate everyone else in what it is that he or she is trying to sell. Unless, of course, they're telling the truth. And then it's a different scenario, isn't it? One of, the, well, one of the, the remarkable observations that we have as we observe this um, variety of witnesses, and it's a bit of a disturbing observation, actually, but it does point in favour of the resurrection is that the first witness is a woman. Do you notice that? In fact, a number of women, if Mark's account is to be believed, and as awful as it is, and it is awful, a woman's testimony wasn't worth much in the ancient world. Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, wrote these words. This is what he said. He said, From women let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. Levity means kind of light-heartedness, temerity, I had to look up, uh, and it kind of means rashness. So, so, so basically, Josephus is saying that females don't have the emotional and, and mental capacity to be witnesses. Now, when we read the biblical account, what do we see? We see women are the very first witnesses. That tells us a number of things. First of all, it tells us that the early church, they were light years ahead in terms of their acceptance as to what women could contribute to a community of faith. Light years ahead. It's only in the last hundred years that our wider society is starting to catch up with that. But secondly, and this is more to the point of what we're discussing in particular this afternoon, secondly... This account doesn't read like a story designed to mislead. If you were going to make a watertight argument in the first century and it was a lie, then you wouldn't write in women into your story as, as references because no one would believe you. Certainly no one would believe them. So you'd leave them out. Unless, of course, this is the way it happened. Then you'd probably want to put them in. 
Well, maybe they were all just hallucinating. Maybe they were just all delusional. Maybe they wanted to see Jesus so badly that they just all imagined that he was there. Some people have put forward this kind of hallucinatory theory, but um, hallucinations happen for a purpose. They can be drug-induced or they can be the result of mental illness. And for everyone to have exactly the same hallucination, a number of things need to line up. Either everyone needs to be stoned at the same time or they all have to have the same kind of form of mental illness fall upon them. And then not only that, but every single hallucination needs to be identical in both its form and its timing, as well as its content. How likely is that? I think it's probably pretty unlikely. Um, these, these are people who don't seem to be hallucinating. Well, maybe they were delusional in another sense. Maybe this is an example of what we now understand to be an example of groupthink. I don't know if you've heard of this phrase before, but groupthink is this idea where people all in the community start believing the same thing and dissenting views are then silenced so that the community can maintain the same party line. Maybe this is an example of that. Well, this is where our friend Thomas can help us. We read about Christ's appearance to Thomas from verse 24. Thomas wasn't with Mary and he wasn't with the, the other male disciples when they first saw Jesus, but he wasn't just going to take their word for it. Thomas is an independent thinker, as were a number of the early Christians. So, for instance, you read the rest of the New Testament, you see that everyone at some stage seems to have a disagreement with Paul over something. Uh, he disagrees with the Corinthians, he and Peter have a disagreement, he and Barnabas have a disagreement. What this suggests is that the early Christian community was not a community which fostered the environment which would create a groupthink situation. They were all too independent. And so I'm not quite sure that's an example either. And not only is Thomas an independent thinker, he's also a scientific thinker. He, he's a man who wants to see and feel evidence. Verse 25, he says, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe, he says. I will not believe it. C.S. Lewis warned us about something called chronological snobbery, which is where we believe that our era is so much more superior than all the other eras that have gone before us. And sometimes we can apply that snobbery to, texts, to the text of the Bible. We can say, well, they might have believed that superstitious nonsense way back in the ancient world, but we modern people, you know, we, we know better, don't we? We're more scientific in our thinking. Can you see how Thomas, even though we know more scientific facts than him because we've, we're coming at a later stage in world history, but do you see how Thomas is scientific in his approach? He's an empiricist like us. He wants to see the hard data. What's more, he gets it. Verse 26. A week later, Christ's disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. I feel a little... Sorry for Thomas, actually. If someone calls you a doubting Thomas, that's not a good thing. What a legacy to leave behind, uh, to be named after an insult, to have an insult named after you. Uh, 
But he's been caught out in his disbelief here, hasn't he? He's so stubborn in his refusal to believe and now he's shown up in front of all the other disciples. If I were Thomas, I, I think I would have to fight the temptation to, to feel a little indignant with Jesus. I'd probably get a little angry. Come on, Jesus, you showed yourself to the others. Why didn't you show yourself to me? You, you're asking of me the harder thing, to believe without seeing. What, what do you expect me to do? What do you expect me to do? I mean, that, that's how I probably would have responded to Jesus, but I love Thomas's response in verse 28. Thomas says to him, My Lord and God, my Lord and God. No protest, no argument. Rather, he's a changed man. A change has occurred. And uh, this touches on the third argument that we Christians use in support of the resurrection. People were changed by something that they had seen. They were changed by something. Just as Thomas was, was changed, the other disciples were changed as well. If you picked up, as, as we had our Bible reading, you, you may have picked up in verses 19 and 26, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors out of fear. Jesus had died. Atonement had been made. Sins of the world cleansed. This is the time for celebration. No, they're hiding behind locked doors. They're shaking. They're thinking, are we next? But then you, know, you read the rest of the New Testament and something changes. And if the rest of church history is anything to go by, we see both men and women willing to die for this belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead. We go from frightened little mice to men and women of great courage. What is it that made the difference? Could it be that they realised that death was only temporary? Could it be that they realised that Jesus was right all along? Could it be that they realised that the enemies of Jesus and therefore the enemies of them, they weren't going to win in the end? Could it be that they'd seen the risen Lord Jesus and that's what made the difference? Because something made the difference. And if we take the scriptures, um, if we take the, the scriptures testimony, then that difference is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they're the three arguments we use. Empty tomb, witnessed appearances, the changed disciples. The question we have now is how are we going to respond? Uh, you know, you may be a little bit like Thomas. Many people are. I've spoken to people who've said, I won't believe unless Jesus comes right down in front of me, right down here, then I'll believe. Well, the fact that Jesus isn't appearing to us is just a product of our place in history because he has appeared. It's just that we weren't in the room at the same time. Just like we weren't on the moon when the astronauts landed there. But um, not being present at the time is no reason to excuse ourselves. As Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Is Jesus asking us to engage in some kind of blind faith just to believe without evidence? That's not what he's saying, at least that's not how John interprets his words because we read John's words in the very following verse, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
We may not be able to see Jesus face to face. That is true. But what we do have is not blind faith, but rather the testimony of those who did see Jesus face to face. That's why John wrote it down, so that we might see it and that we might believe, that we might stop doubting and put our trust in him. But um, the reward for believing is not just to find ourselves on the right side of history. Everyone's concerned to be on the right side of history. Got to take the right moral line in the right political, in the, on the right political issue to be on the right side of history. That's what people are saying. But believing in the resurrection not only puts us on the right side of history, but the other great benefit, and, and this is why the resurrection is important for me, is because we get a share we get a share in the very resurrected life that Jesus himself experienced. What does John say? He says, these are written that you might believe, but that we may have life in his name if we believe. It's a horrible thing to see someone die. It's a horrible thing to see those breaths stop. But the promise of the resurrection that final breath is not, is, is not the final thing. <laughs> that there'll be more breaths to come as God, himself, as God himself breathes new life into our bodies, just as he did with Jesus, that one day we too will be raised from the dead. That's the promise of the resurrection. You know, I remember once in year seven having an argument with my history teacher. Barbara Thiering actually had been on the television. We were discussing it in our history class. We were discussing the resurrection he very great, graciously told us all what actually happens after you die. I feel sorry for the kids who weren't there at school on that day. But he said, after you die, people remember you and then you live on in their memory. And then he pulled the, the atheist trick where he, he underscored just how comforting he finds that crap idea. You live on in people's memory and I love that idea. I love that idea. Really? Some snotty-nosed grandkid remembers you. That's something that's wonderful. And then a couple of generations after that, no one's going to remember you unless they log on to Ancestry.com or whatever the equivalent is in a, in a few years' time. But what does the promise of the resurrection say? You can live. You can live forever. And the way we access that promise is we believe the fact of the resurrection. As Paul says in Romans, you know, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You access that promise by believing in the fact. What I'd like to do just to finish, I'd like to pray a prayer which is based on the words of Thomas because I think that's an appropriate way to finish. That's how John would want us to finish because he's written his gospel in order for us to respond in faith. And so if you know that today is the time to stop doubting and to start believing, then why don't I pray on your behalf and you can say amen at the end and take hold of that prize which is yours in Jesus, eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see from John's gospel that Jesus could not be held by the tomb. We see and believe that you raised him from the dead as witnessed by your servants, the disciples, as witnessed by John in his gospel. We are sorry for our disbelief and we now turn to Jesus who we now call our Lord and our God. 
And we thank you for the eternal life that is now, that is now ours forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. One question we have time to answer, and I'll hang around and um, chat with people and maybe go through some of these questions if people are interested. Why does 1 Corinthians 15.5 say that Jesus appeared to Peter first and when John says that Mary saw him first? Uh, Well, a couple of things to say. Maybe Paul had in mind the male apostles when he was speaking about who saw Jesus first. Perhaps he was buying into that mood of the day or perhaps was aware of the mood of the day and so made his argument accordingly. Perhaps that's one reason. The other thing to remember is when you look at the different um, documents in the New Testament, when you actually see variations in what it is that they describe or in the order that they describe events or, or things like that, that's actually evidence against collusion. It's evidence that these are independent witnesses quick example, I remember watching TV, there was a big natural disaster happening and I was flicking between the stations. One channel said, you know, that this building collapsed in, at, at 10 minutes past the hour. The, the second station said, this building collapsed at 20 minutes past the hour. They both can't be right. But what do we know? We know a building collapsed and it was disastrous and that can be verified by two independent witnesses. And I think when you're reading the New Testament and you see things and they're explained in different ways, that's something to remember. It's evidence against collusion and you need to recognise that they're actually saying the same thing about the issue that matters and that is Jesus rose from the dead.